I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 9th, 2018. Coming up, its proponents call it the future of medicine, replacing many types of orthopedic surgeries. Its critics call it snake oil. Today, physician Jason Glowney will discuss the scientific advancements and challenges of regenerative medicine. with a few science headlines. The prize in physiology or medicine, the Nobel Prize that is, one of the first to be announced, was awarded last week to James Allison of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and to Tanaka Honeho of Kyoto University in Japan. They both separately discovered ways to remove the immune system's breaks that prevent it from attacking tumor cells. Allison's discovery is based on an earlier finding that T-cells carry a molecular on or off switch on their surface. T-cells are the immune system attack dogs. They go after foreign cells and cancerous or infected cells of our own bodies. But if the switch is in the off position, the T-cell won't attack. Dr. Allison's Nobel-worthy idea was to block the off switch, which will activate the T-cell, and it worked. Although pharmaceutical companies initially rejected the T-cell blocker, which is a protein called an antibody that recognizes only the switch molecule, eventually a startup company picked it up in 1998. The rest is history. Dr. Honeho discovered a different breaking protein on T-cells. This one is more like an emergency break. In early clinical trials, some patients whose cancers had metastasized or spread were cured. Like many other discoveries in biomedical fields, it took years for these to reach clinical applications. But now many cancer patients are getting the benefits of groundbreaking cell biology work that began in the 1980s. This study was published last week in the journal Science. An alarming new report from United Nations climate scientists paints a grim picture of climate change, one of widespread famine, disease, drought, and poverty. Monday's report, issued by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, describes a dire situation. If global temperatures continue to rise at the current rate, the atmosphere would warm as much as 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels by the year 2040. A change of this magnitude is huge. For context, global temperatures only rose an estimated 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit in the 250 years between the start of the Industrial Revolution and the early 2000s. The report is the first commissioned since the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, and it shows that the emission reduction measures outlined in the 2015 meeting will be inadequate. The temperature increase will likely displace about 50 million people along coastlines and will cause coral reefs to decline by up to 90%. The report also predicts substantial decreases in fish and crop yields and large increases in incidences of heat death and of diseases such as malaria. Scientists estimate that limiting global warming will require an investment of 2.4 trillion, that's trillion, U.S. dollars annually until the year 2035. The report advises aggressive action and cooperation on local, national, and international levels to vastly reduce the global greenhouse gas emissions. So yesterday from the White House, crickets. 
Over the last 20 years, astronomers have discovered over 3,000 exoplanets, which are planets that orbit other stars. Now, astronomers have possibly observed the first moon orbiting one of the exoplanets, an exomoon. There are roughly 200 moons in our own solar system, including our own. Scientists use an observation technique called the transit method to find exoplanets. If an exoplanet is present and happens to pass in front or behind its host star, the light from the star changes. This change can be detected by astronomers using ground-based or space-based telescopes. If an exomoon orbits the exoplanet, it too changes the light emitted by the star. But until recently, the change in light created by an exomoon was too small to measure. Two researchers from Columbia University recently published a new observation that may be the first detection of an exomoon. Using data from the Kepler mission, which has been finding exoplanets for almost a decade, they have observed the starlight from a system that was known to have a Jupiter-sized exoplanet. In the starlight from this system, they found a small signal that is consistent with the existence of an exomoon. This moon possibly has a mass and size similar to Neptune, much larger than the moons that orbit Jupiter. As astronomers develop new observational techniques, and as our telescopes get larger and more powerful, astronomers will continue to find more exomoons, expanding the long list of worlds that we know about. The research was published last week in the journal Science Advances. And on the science calendar, tonight, Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation titled From Brewing Beer to Making Energy. Oh, microbes, how could we live without you? Sounds so romantic. The speaker is Pinching Manis from the Biosciences Center at the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, in Golden. She'll talk about the world of microbes and how they're so essential to our world. Microbes, or bacteria, were the first life forms on Earth more than 3.5 billion years ago. They make organic molecules, possibly serving as a sign of life on other planets, and they have shaped the Earth we live on. Indeed, they shape us as individuals. Microbes make the oxygen we breathe and the food we enjoy, such as cheese, wine, beer, and sauerkraut. Microbes are our ancestors and our daily companions. Our body, in fact, contains trillions of bacteria, the microbiome that keeps us healthy. In this presentation, Pinching Manis will touch up on how we can crack the genetic codes and harness these invisible creatures' innate ability to transform energy and chemicals for us using sunlight, waste organic materials, and even electricity, and creating hydrogen, biofuels, biodegradable plastics, and high-value chemicals. Everyone is welcome to these Café Sci presentations and discussions, which take place at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver, close to Coors Field. The the talk starts at 6.30 tonight and ends around 8 o'clock. Listening to KGNU's Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Susan Moran. Our theme today is something you may have heard about from an athlete friend, or maybe you've experienced it yourself. In fact, Colorado's Front Range is quite a hub for a nascent but growing field of medicine. It's called regenerative medicine. It's basically a cluster of therapies that researchers are advancing that regenerate or replace injured, diseased, or defective cells, tissues, or organs. 
The goal of these therapies is to restore or establish function and structure. Today, we'll begin a series of shows on regenerative medicine by focusing on how it is applied to orthopedic injuries, from an ACL tear to tendinosis in a hamstring or glute, or even to arthritis. Three key forms of regenerative medicine for orthopedics are stem cell, prolotherapy, and platelet-rich plasma, known as PRP. We'll get into these with our guest, his physician, Jason Glowney. He recently founded Boulder Biologics. It's devoted solely to regenerative medicine treatments. Jason, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So why don't you jump in? Just give us a Cliff Notes version of what the heck is this broad field of regenerative medicine. Sure. I guess to put it in a nutshell, regenerative medicine means to uh, harness the uh, individual's own body's ability to heal itself. So this can be uh, through direct means where we take cells from someone's body, uh, put them in an active area of uh, injury or uh, inflammation, and try to uh, make changes there. To and this uh, is this is the patient's own body. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, and then also uh, there's ways that we can indirectly do it through uh, mechanisms like prolotherapy, where we put in uh, pro therapy stands for prol- uh, proliferation therapy, where we put in dextrose, typically the sugar, where we're able to elicit an immune response to the injection that we uh, put in injured tissue, and then through that means get the immune system harnessed to uh, create some healing also. And I must admit, the idea of sugar water always sounded a little bit like snake oil to me, but obviously it does something. Can you explain what it's doing? Sure. And I'd be the first to say we don't entirely know why it works, but it does seem to uh, have some benefits in certain injuries uh, that we find. So two thoughts are this. Uh, We're putting a needle into a tissue. We're actually causing microtrauma by uh, injecting over and over again into those tissues. With that, you get some bleeding. It seems when you bleed, you get healing. So that's maybe one potential uh, route that the uh, the prolotherapy might work. The other is the osmolality of the the dextrose. Typically, 5% dextrose is what we call isotonic or similar in osmolality to the... uh, What's osmolality? So that's just basically kind of the... um, the concentration of the dextrose in the solution. So normally um, you have salt, uh, sodium chloride in the body, and that's usually about 0.09% as isotonic. But um, the way that we make the prolotherapy typically for healing is we make it uh, higher in concentration. And so basically what that does is it uh, drives fluid out of some of the tissues that are in the surrounding area and kind of creates this uh, shriveling effect, I guess you can say. And that might kind of add to some of the healing abilities, uh, you know, from the prolotherapy also. And when you talk about healing, that kind of brings us into this whole area of stem cells, which are the big healers, of course. So maybe you can talk a little bit about just what these cells are and how they do their magic. Sure, sure. So uh, there's different areas where we're finding um, the body has stem cells. Uh, Basically, you uncover a a rock and there's some stem cells in some form or another. So historically, we always went to the bone marrow um, for stem cells, and uh, this probably goes back to... uh, with orthopedic surgeries, um, we call it a microfracture, where in the knee, for instance, if there was a cartilage uh, defect, um, they would uh, poke holes into the bone, into the bone marrow, and these uh, bone marrow cells would come out, form a scab, and actually form um, a type of cartilage we call fibrocartilage. So with uh, with bone marrow, um, we're able to find these uh, what we call mesenchymal stem cells in a small number, um, and uh, those are the things that um, 10 years ago in the orthopedic realm, uh, 
um, a lot of the physicians were using uh, to help augment healing. Um, one of the first applications were for something we call avascular necrosis, which is dying of the bone, and it's uh, a real problem. And uh, they're finding that taking the bone marrow, in some cases concentrating it, where you're looking for just the nucleated cells in the bone marrow, and putting those into injuries like uh, the dying bone, that uh, they would get um, pretty, uh, pretty nice outcomes where the bone would start to regenerate and to heal itself and to come alive again. Um, the field has expanded where now we're looking into fat tissue or adipose, as we call it, um, especially around the abdomen and the flanks. That's where it seems to be uh, most concentrated in, ser- in terms of the stem cells. Now, the misnomer is this. It's not in the fat cells, or what we call the adipocytes. It's actually in the parasites and the, uh, the cells that line the vasculature or by the uh, capillaries of the arterioles and these things. So the fat we don't really need, but um, you know we'll get into this a little bit later about FDA regulation. We throw the fat in, in there with the what we call the stromal vascular fraction where those stel- uh, stem cells are. Looking further into it, there's actually stem cells in uh, the lining of the joints or the synovium. There's stem cells in uh, the skin um, and uh, a whole bunch of different places that we're finding. The goal is to see what stem cells are best for the application that you're going to use them with. And uh, there's this notion of locality where if the stem cells are closer to the injured tissue, uh, maybe that pretends uh, well to um, have a better stem cell to uh, uh, suit the job that you're trying to, uh, to kind of help with. And I'm curious, in what areas have you seen and, and practice most success? And, it, and I don't mean just sort of technologically where the advancements are, but physiologically and, and chemically sure. where it's most promising and actually effective thus far. Sure. And also how does that tie into conventional? Like is it actually as a replacement for surgery in these cases? Sure. So I think what we're finding is the uh, the patients that get the best outcomes with stem cell therapy and even PRP are the ones that are in a category what we uh, call mild to moderate, meaning a mild injury, moderate injury, mild arthritis, moderate arthritis. Um, there's such a thing as too big of an ask for the stem cells to help you with. And uh, I think that's something that uh, um, we try to be um, straightforward with patients about uh, you know, what the expectations can be. Uh, it's not a miracle, and uh, usually I think a good outcome for a case of moderate arthritis would be for five years of benefit where the patient feels better. I think uh, some people oversell it where they promise 25 years, and uh, it makes me smirk a little bit when I see that, where I think it's just salesmanship, and uh, basically there's no evidence that seems to support that. And the field hasn't been around for that long to make that uh, call that it's going to last for 25 years. So, for instance, when you say 5 versus 20, meaning it could buy someone time before they might need a hip replacement for arthritis? Sure, or, or it might be, uh, end up being a serial um, type of uh, treatment where you're doing the stem cells again at some point down the road. So, um, yeah, what we find is you need to have the native cells in the tissue for the stem cells to pick up on the signals that they release when they're injured or damaged so they know what to turn into or know how to signal those cells to replicate and uh, differentiate. So um, when, for instance, there's bone-on-bone arthritis, a whole part of the joint is eroded, stem cells are smart, but it doesn't seem that they're that smart to actually lay down sheets and uh, sheets of chondrocytes and make cartilage. So there's nothing to lay down on. Exactly. So it's this preventative uh, approach to what regenerative medicine is. That's the stage that we're at right now with with what we know and kind of what we're regulated to, to be able to do also. So speaking of regulation, this is opening a big can of worms, so I'm not going to jump in too deeply, but as we all know, in this country, the FDA regulates what we can and can't 
do in terms of medicine. And the FDA regulations on stem cells are pretty deep and convoluted. And here, you can only take out um, some kind of tissue that you're going to use, especially blood tissue like you do with stem cells, that you're going to use within a 24-hour period. And it's supposed to be doing about the same thing that it does where you have taken it out from. So how can how can you go about then taking fat, say, from a liposuction and deriving the stem cells and then using that in a knee? How does that work under the regulations? Sure. Well, the FDA regulates that uh, there's two factors. We call it um, homologous use, which you kind of alluded to, where we're using those cells for a similar, uh, similar, uh, in a similar manner. And the other thing is what we call minimal manipulation. And that's kind of the one that's maybe the uh, more of the sticking point with uh, how we're directed uh, in terms of how we can practice in the United States. So minimal manipulation is um, we can't uh, change the cellular makeup up of what we harvest. So with adipocytes or our fat tissue, we can't digest off the fat and then just isolate the uh, the stem cells or the stromovascular fraction. We have to put it all back in. Um, I can't take bone marrow, concentrate it, take fat, mix them together and inject as one. I have to inject one and then switch the syringe and inject the other. So it's these little things that they all mix together, but uh, we want to make sure that we adhere to FDA regulation and, and, and by the laws. Um, now, with that said, uh, maybe there is this little bit of um, a kind of hindrance of the innovations that maybe we can kind of create. But I think that on the flip side, you see that it's, um, it's all based on the safety for, for patients. And I think that's probably of prime importance. Uh. We're going to uh, take a little station break before coming back to uh, this issue of regulations. You're listening to KGNU Radio, Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, and Nederland. For those who joined us late, I'm Susan Moran. My co-host Beth Bennett and I are talking with our guest, Dr. Jason Glowney of Boulder Biologics, about the emerging and rapidly growing field of regenerative medicine. So in terms of what clinics can and can't do, I spoke to several clinics recently, and one of them told me they were using freeze-dried amniotic cells. And, of course, my little skeptic radar went up when I heard that. And I just wondered what you thought of that procedure. Sure. I think this is probably for the people who are in the regenerative medicine space who are kind of doing it uh, and adhering to ethics. I think that's uh, a misrepresentation of uh, what they're actually doing. Anytime they're saying there's live stem cells in those products, it's patently false. Where, uh, you know, I encourage anyone to call the FDA themselves to ask that question and, uh, you know, buy these uh, product 361, which are how we do it and what's legal, versus product 351 that require um, more of this involved. Um, approval process, just like a, a medication per the FDA guidelines. And for our listeners, this product terminology is FDA jargon. It just refers to a certain regulation. Exactly. So um, with, uh, they call it embryonic stem cells. Um, the better term is fetal conception products, where an embryo is um, uh, kind of uh, coined that term up until about nine or ten weeks, and then it becomes a fetus. Uh, so basically, they're taking waste products. It's kind of a bad term. <laughs> I don't mean to offend anyone, but uh, they're taking these fetal conception products. Uh, There's several different um, uh, kind of uh, stages that they go through, but uh, per FDA guidelines for that company to sell that product, it has to be acellular, meaning all the cells are dead. Um, what they probably better represent is um, they have growth factors, which are proteins in the uh, amniotic fluid or the uh, kind of the Wharton's jelly and these other ways that they get these products. They do help with pain at first, um, but um, they might even uh, kind of uh, 
give benefit for what we call like an extracellular matrix. And uh, the way I like to uh, kind of uh, make an analogy to that is like fertilizing the soil. So you put live cells on there that are going to grow better and take better. So anytime they're saying there's stem cells in there is uh, a falsehood. And so the practitioners who are doing these types of procedures are either one or two things, committing fraud, or I hope um, just uh, by a little bit of ignorance that they don't really know what they're putting into patients. And so our thoughts are, I never trust uh, any pharmacy rep to, if they're selling me something, kind of the warning sign should go off in your, in your mind where you want to test these things, you want to look at them. And when you usually put them to the test that says, hey, we have what we call flow cytometer, we can count cells, we can count viabilities, we can see if they're alive or dead, they usually go running. Uh, so uh, that's the thing where it's your litmus for uh, what's true and what's not true. So I'm curious, do you think it's the field is regulated enough in the U.S.? And how do regs in the U.S. compare with, say, generally much more stringently regulated EU? Yeah. So I think the uh, it's it's kind of a tough question. I think there's the FDA probably will start to come down on some of these uh, misrepresentations of um, you know the fetal conception products like the amniotic fluid, where uh, they have to um, be honest about uh, what it is and what their expectations are. With um, it does hinder innovation, where if you go to Europe, they're doing uh, more of the um, uh, kind of manipulation of the cells, where they're isolating uh, stem cells, taking away the cells that don't seem to uh, help out too much. Um, and they're also doing what we call these expansions, meaning stem cell expansion is when you culture the cells, grow more of them, and then uh, have a higher number that you're able to kind of uh, deliver to the patient. Um, those are uh, avenues of research where uh, here in the United States we have a little bit of trouble dealing with those or uh, kind of looking into those, except at the bigger research centers where maybe they're looking at some of these with other applications. Um, there's still questions that need to be answered about um, is it better just to take a bone marrow aspirate live, quickly turn around and put it in the patient versus stem cell expansions where they grow them. They take several days to do it. One of the issues we're finding is with uh, the longer the cells are out of your body, the more senescent they become, meaning they don't work uh, quite as well. And so there's this balance between the two. Uh, more studies need to be done between uh, the same-day procedures and these uh, very expensive procedures that you can uh, fly out of the country for, pay $30,000 to do, and they might not work any better. So there's a couple studies that show that they uh, work similarly. So I think we need to know more about it and um, you know, kind of have a good information to give uh, patients good information so they can make an informed choice about what the best approach would be. So for one who's just looking into this, doesn't know a heck of a lot about the science, may not even have access to some of the studies behind or the lack of studies behind a particular practice, aside from cost comparisons, and they seem to vary wildly, mm-hmm. what how do you tease out what's legit, what's not, what may be working on the fine edge of regulations? Sure. So I think that it's all about finding a provider that they can trust and someone who's uh, reputable. So that's easier said than done. Or I think that uh, a lot of these uh, mass meetings where they bring in patients and they promise stem cells and all these other things, uh, you know, that's uh, you know a lot of people will go to to, to see those, and uh, but they do have to beware. Um, but I think that uh, if you can find a reputable provider of uh, regenerative medicine, they can take an honest approach with you and uh, you know tell you uh, are you a candidate or not. If you're moderate to mild, you will be. Even if you're advanced, you sometimes do get benefit. It seems to be short-lived. Many of the studies uh, seem to be based on subjectivity of how patients feel. Like, I feel better without any MRI evidence that said, hey, you grew cartilage. And that might be a result of um, the stem cells seem to turn off a lot of the inflammatory markers from the immune system. People feel better. So, uh, you know, there's two sides of this. But, uh, yeah, to answer your question, 
finding someone who you can trust who's uh, ethical about regenerative medicine. Um, there's uh, several of us out there, I think. But, but what should um, you be asking to know whether they're ethical or not? Like, tell me what you yeah. don't know. Sure. <laughs> I think the approach is they want to see your uh, your MRI, your x-rays. You want to come in and uh, show them those things so they can kind of gauge your candidacy. Uh, candidacy. Um, it should be probably this uh, gold standard probably is bone marrow. Adipose is starting to be added to that. Anyone that that's uh, touting the uh, the fetal conception products as the only thing that they do. I would uh, I would turn around and run away. Um, that's my advice. And what do you think about the? clinics that do so-called clinical trials. One thing I read on, I believe, the FDA website is that if you are required to pay to be part of a clinical trial, you should not believe that it's a true clinical trial. I totally agree with you there. And that's kind of this ruse where um, uh, patient-funded studies is what they're called. Um, that's just uh, kind of uh, lingo for, hey, we're doing something that's outside of the product 361 of those FDA guidelines to uh, almost get away with it in, in a way. I think if they're truly doing research, it should be um, center-funded. Um, you know, sometimes they'll try to run an MRI through insurance or something. I don't think the patient should be paying out-of-pocket for these procedures, especially if they're experimental like they say they are. Well, thank you so much for this. really appreciate it. And as I mentioned before, we'll be doing a series of shows on regenerative medicine, different forms, including for cancer. Jason Glowney, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Jason Glowney, MD, founder of Boulder Biologics. It's a clinic that focuses on integrative and regenerative medicine. And we will post uh, some links on the show later today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was also produced by yours truly and engineered by Beth Bennett. Additional headline contributions from Joel Parker, Alejandro Soto, and Gretchen Wettstein. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Celtic Tides. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Susan Moran.